the concept of the resume, trying to understand someone's hard skills is not a flawed one. I get it that for certain careers, if you don't have the requisite hard skills, it, you're not going to be successful right out of the gate. However, the problem with the resume and hard skills is we have become completely over-reliant on that as our way of understanding somebody's fit to the world of work. And that just provides a very two-dimensional picture of someone. Workforce transformation, a future of work where individuals are owners of their own career. Companies buying work outcomes, not employees, on the open market. Welcome to State of Independence, the podcast about how independent work has completely transformed the U.S. economy and how you can take advantage of it. I'm your host, Asya Haq, Vice President of Talent Marketing and Bio Partners, and today we will talk with Dr. Frida Poli, CEO and co-founder of Pimetrix, the talent matching platform based on behavioral science and ethical AI. Our conversation will range from her experiences as a female founder to her work building an AI-driven future of work that increases organizational diversity. I am so excited to welcome you to the MBO State of Independence podcast. I have followed along on the journey for you and your company. And as a female founder of a tech startup or two in the past, I'm especially excited when I get to speak with somebody who has taken the leap into entrepreneurship and done so successfully as a woman leader and especially as a mom. And I know that's a big part of your story and I'm certainly gonna dive into that as we talk about what you're striving to do with your business. One of the first things I like to do as I have these conversations on behalf of MBO at the 10 year mark for our journey studying independent work is to sort of stop and reflect on where you were 10 years ago, because with the rate of change of technology, with the way the world is going, I think it's actually really telling to understand where were you in the past and how did it take you to where you are today as a CEO and founder of a company in the artificial intelligence and recruitment space? Sure. Uh, I so. 10 years ago was 2011. Um, and so I had just started business school um, at Harvard and I was transitioning uh, out of academia to a different career. I actually wasn't 100% sure what that career would look like. Um, I knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. I knew I wanted it to leverage the science we had been uh, developing in the lab, but I really wasn't you know, really sure uh, what I, what that would look like. Um, it wasn't until that summer that the idea for Pemetrix really crystallized after watching recruiting um, for the first year of, of business school and thinking, wow, this is, you know, pretty dated and we could be doing a lot better. Um, and so that, that was, that's a big change now that I've, you know, been in the business world uh, since then, basically. Um, and then the other big difference is I was a single parent of a five-year-old at the time and a single parent and sole breadwinner for um, my family of two. So <laughs> that was uh, definitely different compared to now where I'm, um, our family has grown <laughs> um, and uh, I'm no longer single parenting. So yeah, so those, that's kind of reflecting back. I was, it was funny when you asked that, I was like, wow, that's quite a while ago. You mentioned that you were leaving a certain world mm -hmm. to move into the world of business and business school was your pivot point at Harvard. But I know yeah. much of your story also has to do with what you did in the years before you became sure. what a quote a business person. And it has a lot to do with the company that you've built. So could for the benefit of our audience, could you talk a little bit about your academic background and how that has shaped or helped you to become the founder that you are today? Sure. 
Uh, I spent 10 years in academic neuroscience at Harvard and MIT. It was a great, it was really a great experience. I felt privileged and honored to be um, in a very rarefied and, and, and not only rarefied, but just such an exciting field um, because neuroscience, cognitive neuroscience was really coming into its own, coming into the fore. Um, and so that was exciting. And, and we were learning all sorts of new things about people. And we were also basically exploring new ways of understanding people and what makes them tick. That's sort of what drew me into cognitive neuroscience. Um, and so it was super exciting. And when I made, when I say new ways of, of understanding people, you know, we were looking at new ways of looking at cognitive, social, and emotional aptitudes in people. And, you know, at the time, the, the focus of the research was not on what we do now, which is how does that help you with a career fit? Um, at the time, it was really trying to take these traits and map them to brain functioning, which is really what a lot of what cognitive neuroscience did in the early days. And then subsequently to that was trying to understand how does this understanding help us with essentially better understanding of different types of disorders, be they psychiatric disorders or neurological disorders? And then what can we do in terms of, um, you know, treatment and helping these people? Um, so that's essentially what, you know, cognitive neuroscience, brain imaging, all of that good stuff. Um, that's what we were doing. And it was really, I really loved doing that uh, where it ended up falling short for me was the, and now what component, meaning that we learned a lot, but then how we were going to apply those learnings to actually helping people. So that was the gap for me. I really wanted something where I could be more hands-on um, in helping people. And that's why I transitioned out of academic science to what I do now. Well, I've dug into a little bit and I, I, I try not to do too much because I love to hear it live. But I loved the concept behind um, your business, a very crisp and I think very unique and differentiated concept around ethical AI and the inclusion of different types of talents into our corporate ecosystems, right? And university being one of them and, and many, many others. Yep. So talk a little bit about how you became somebody who became an expert in applying artificial intelligence to recruitment and, and what you see as the future in a world where many of us, as we think about AI, whether it's a company leader or an individual layperson, mm -hmm. maybe finds that word really scary and sort of the yeah. antithesis of a positive development for right. the talent workforce. I'm sure you've thought about that. It's clear you have a perspective. I, I understand completely the concern and, and I think it's very valid. And I think it is incumbent upon technologists uh, like myself uh, and others to really advocate for ethical AI because they're, you know, the reason this concern exists is because it's, not mandated or regulated in any way that the AI that's being developed by these systems is is ethical. And quite frankly, there's you know, there's debate as to how you would how you would even operationalize that principle. So I think that's the concern, right? That we create all these artificial intelligence systems that have you know either lots of biases that are not transparent or unintended consequences and so on and so forth. Um, and I completely share that concern, quite frankly, because we do see um, you know actors in the space that that we think are not particularly ethical and a rising number, I would say. So it is concerning. I'm not here to bless an industry <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. I do 
believe that we need to do more in terms of providing those guardrails and, and we as technologists need to work um, hand in hand with policymakers and regulators and so on to, to, to offer our area of expertise on the subject. And I think, look, and I think there's growing awareness that there needs to be applied work done in the space. It's not enough to simply say, um, you know, I'm an ethical AI company and provide no documentation of that. So what, in my mind, what does it mean to be an ethical AI company in the space? I think there, for me, it's fairly, fairly clear. Um, and it's not a comprehensive definition. I think we're just starting to understand all the ways that represent an ethical system, but let's just start with gender and ethnic bias. Um, you know, at le in most countries, uh, most developed countries, the US included, there is a very clear legal definition as to what it means to have a gender and ethnic bias. It's called disparate impact. And, you know, it is not hard in any way to test your algorithms for disparate impact. It's actually very easy from a mathematical perspective. Now, building a system that doesn't produce disparate impact is a different story. That's much harder. But actually testing your algorithms for that uh, is easy. And so we believe that any company in the space really should be from the beginning, from its inception, um, building algorithms that are disparate impact free. And that, you know, we really don't have any certainty right now as to whether that's the case. Um, and there's nothing, um, there's really nothing pushing technologists in in our space to do that. Now, there are things that are changing. Um, there are local bills and, and certainly federal regulation that's being considered that would have people moving in this direction. Um, so we're hopeful about that. But I think, you know, I think what the problem is um, that, you know, companies that are not particularly interested in, in ethical principles or that, you know, really, you know, just ethics washing, I'm sure you've heard that term, or just interested in ethics washing, take advantage of this gray area and just say, you know, uh, confuse the situation enough that everyone, um, you know, kind of, and no one really is able to hold them accountable anyways, because there are no mechanisms. So I think that we do really need to move towards a, a situation where there are more mandates and guidelines and and uh, and safeguards put in place and you know we're we're we believe that we would comply but we would want to see the industry be far more compliant because it is such a high risk situation when you're talking about um you know people's livelihoods so absolutely and the other thing to think about i mean the other thing is just that it's not you know typically in recruiting or other workforce decisions now it's not just one layer of ai that might be applied it's multiple layers right so it just the problem becomes more and more complex which is why we think it's critical to start implementing some of these safeguards. And, you know, for example, we're supportive of a bill that's going through New York City right now that would essentially mandate reporting on disparate impact for any automated hiring system. And we think that's a really big step in the right direction because if you don't know um, what these systems are doing, uh, you know, it's really hard to, to say with any kind of confidence that you're not introducing bias or disparate in impact into your hiring process. So we're, we're big fans of any type of uh, transparency initiatives, either at the local level, the state level, the federal level, we'll take them all. <laughs> it's interesting. One of the things behind MBO's evolution, and I see some similarities um, in your position and your kind of advocacy is to understand who you represent. Because in talent, everyone has to represent something or someone in our ecosystem for more than two decades. It's been the independent worker you know, a part of the work population that's often overlooked. And, I, and what I hear underlying your corporate principles, which by the way, I think are, are spot on. I mean, I think it's something that we are going to be expected to do, and if not something we already should be able to do, and you, you make both points, right? That it should have already been practiced, but maybe it isn't. And, and how do we get there? 
is the idea of making it easier. So one of the big observations as a founder, as a business person that I've had through many, many companies and many iterations of traditional corporate roles, startup roles is the more you can make a really difficult problem easy for somebody to solve, yeah. the more likely they are to actually adopt that new yeah. behavior. And I'm going to use that moment or that insight to ask you for the benefit of our audience that may not know your company sure. to really just describe what it is that you do sure. in terms of the product, the software. And I, I know there's pieces to what you do, sure. but maybe what you see is the heart of the offering. Yeah, sure. So Climatrics is a company in the AI and workforce development space, um, meaning we do hiring, mobility, rescaling, and so on. Um, and what I would say is that the, there are really several advances that we're bringing to the field. One is based in cognitive science. So cognitive scientists have developed new ways of measuring people using behavioral measures. So, um, you know, things that have tools that have been developed in, in the lab over the last decade or two that replace or attempt to replace paper, paper and pencil questionnaires and so on. So the actual data that you're collecting on people is an improvement. And then, and then the other improvement is that um, not only are we looking at behavior rather than self-report, which is always an advantage, but the other improvement is that the data tends to be far less biased than some of these other um, data sources. So that's a big thing, you know, and, and that is really important because when you're trying to build algorithms that are both predictive and unbiased, it, it's really hard to do that if your data set is full of what are called proxy variables. So if one, a, a variable that you're using in your algorithms is just a proxy variable for gender, for example, you know what I mean, which a lot of resume data can can be thought of that way. And essentially these this data and these algorithms are used to match people to jobs. So by matching, it could be used in the employment context, it could be used in the mobility context, reskilling. There's some really powerful stories about people using our tool for reskilling and just amazing outcomes. We had this woman go from being homeless to working in healthcare. Um, and again, not without a lot of support and coaching, but the initial spark for this career change came from um, our system, which is amazing. Um, and then again, the second piece that we bring to the table aside from better data is, is better algorithms, as we mentioned. And so these algorithms are essentially tested for disparate impact. So disparate impact just basically means how fair is your algorithm with respect to race and gender. So a tool that has no disparate impact for gender basically has statistical parity between um, recommendation rates for men and women, um, and same thing for ethnicity. And if you're not showing statistical parity, the legal definition of statistical parity, then you are found to have disparate impact. And then that's obviously a concern. Um, so that's th th those are essentially the two big concepts. And they might sound pretty basic, like why don't all tools have disparate impact reporting? You know, why are all tools not built with the idea that they shouldn't have disparate impact? I mean, I would I would agree seems pretty basic, but uh, that's not that's not where the state of the field is. What do you see as the economic opportunity of essentially the resume killer, right? That's what you're what you're doing kills something big, kills the resume and it proposes to replace it with something else. Sure. What is that looking yeah, like so for your business? Look, the concept of the resume, trying to understand someone's hard skills is not a flawed one, right? I get it that for certain careers, if you don't have the requisites hard skills, it, you're not going to be successful right out of the gate. So let me put it that way. However, the problem with the resume and hard skills is that is we have become completely over-reliant on that as our way of understanding somebody's fit to the world of work. And that just provides a very two-dimensional picture of someone, right? Um, I am more than just the, the sub, this list of skills that I've acquired over some period of time. Um, and the second th problem with it is that hard skills, you know, 
for, for better or worse, track socioeconomic opportunity. So if you're looking for ways to equalize the world, um, hard skills is unfortunately not a great starting point. Um, so, so bottom line, hard skills are both prov providing a much narrower picture of someone than one should, one should want. And two, they are also providing a picture that really continues to perpetuate social structures, right? Which we're, which we're trying so hard to reshape. At the end of the day, what the beauty is of soft skills is that they are far more equally distributed and therefore, you know, between genders, between races, um, between, between socioeconomic groups. Um, and that's what's so critical, right? I mean, the potential that somebody has for different forms of careers, different vocations is so much greater than their particular track history, right? I mean, that's just, you know, like think about all the things you could do right, that you would be well suited to do um, and think of all the things you have done. One, one is a much bigger group. Well, <laughs> if you think about Venn diagrams, one's a big circle, the other one's a little circle. And so when we start thinking about, you know, people's potential and really expanding people's potential, we need a way to continually evaluate somebody's potential, not just their past or their pedigree. And I think that's the beauty of soft skills. And, you know, if that needing to sort of um, do a refresh and say, what is my potential happens at so many times in our life, right? We can, you know, I think it's some crazy stat, like a quarter of people are looking for a career change every year. Um, you know, and, and, and I think a lot of times people are frustrated because, you know, when you go to LinkedIn, you know, they're recommending the same basic job that you're doing now, just at a different company or a slightly different tweak. And that's not what people are looking for when they're looking for a career change, especially in this day and age when, you know, it's like, we will live to have such long productive lives. And, you know, a lot of people want to do different things. So the value of, of measuring people's potential is great. And it has many, re many, many reasons that it's valuable. Um, and I think soft skills is, is a critical component of doing it well. Well, you, I think, represent what is really important about science, which is to apply science for the greater good. And I really, I kind of applaud you for that. It's interesting. Thanks. I had a great discussion on one of these previous episodes that you should certainly listen to with Jeff Wold, who wrote the book, The End of Jobs. And we spent a lot of time talking about LinkedIn and the skills taxonomy. He's talking a lot about what's broken with that set of hard mm -hmm. skills. Yeah. And we actually use it to get people into the right roles, which yeah. is such a complicated thing. Totally. I think like it yeah. should be a simple thing. The other piece that strikes me, and especially as we're kind of in that virtual world of the sort of hashtag Davos agenda, the global leaders coming together, thinking about the future. Yeah, I presented the Davos agenda, so. Oh, that's awesome. Well, hopefully, because it, it's. Hopefully there's some substance behind that, but yeah. yeah so I believe it, there is. I believe there is. I mean, we're part of that reskilling revolution. Uh, right, America, right. So. It struck me. I was, I was looking at some of the content that's come out of the future work track and yep. uh, you know there's been many leaders you know CEOs of various large employment firms that have talked about the basically skills becoming obsolete every couple of years even for very seasoned mid-career professionals you talk about that equalization of opportunity at every level of the rung right so you're right to point out that when you have certain hard skills maybe you'll have a soft landing and, and find your next thing or have the economic freedom to stop and explore. Not everybody has that. 
I, I think it's a really, really important dialogue when it comes to professional longevity. I want to point out something that we've learned in our world that might be interesting to you as you've sort of focused on jobs as your, as your core premise. So we think that at MBO that according to our state of independent study, which is a study that's a long running study, 10 year study of the independent workforce, a very fascinating insight into what drives people who choose to become independent workers, how many are independent workers, how many do we project will enter this world in the future. And really there's a future in which somebody that is in the workforce, one and two will cycle through what we think of as an independent career, not a traditional job, and some will just stay and permanently choose that lifestyle because it provides happiness, self-actualization, choice, and the ability to unlock a revisit of who you are as an individual and where and how you want to contribute. I'm curious if you've thought about that in the work that you're doing and if you see what you're doing as having an application, maybe explain how a, an individual, let's say an independent professional in our platform ecosystem might be able to interact with what you're doing. Is there is there a pathway today? Is there a consumer offering or are you more of an enterprise player? Yeah, today? So that's a great question. So um, we used to have a consumer offering uh, and we will go back to having a consumer offering. The challenge is really managing um, identity identity authentication. So as you can imagine, if you are both an enterprise and a consumer offering, people might <laughs> use the consumer offering to somehow game the enterprise uh, the enterprise use case, meaning people would be creating 100 fake accounts to try to tweak their responses so they are getting the ones they wanted, even though that doesn't help you in any way. Bottom line, I just think it was being misused. And so unfortunately we had to shut it down, but we do have closed systems that um, that are consumer facing. So for example, I was telling you about this um, reskilling initiative in Ohio where we're the technology backbone. And again, you know, there's lots of hand delivered layers like job coaching and this that, and the other. So technology alone is not gonna solve reskilling. However, the cool part is that we are the matching layer that tells folks that are looking for reskilling what they could do next. And it was this amazing story of this woman named Lois Brown, who had been in sort of guest services and, you know, uh, live entertainment and lost her job, had become homeless, was a mother of two and went to, you know, this, this, this reskilling initiative and her job coach had her go through our platform and basically told her that healthcare was the right career for her. Um, and then told her what the transferable skills were and then the gaps that she needed to fill. And, you know, I think some months later with a lot of support and coaching, um, she's now landed a job in healthcare, which is really, you know, very inspiring. I mean, that really should be, that is the goal, I think, of these AI systems um, should be to provide this type of ability to, to match people to things that A, are good growth opportunities, right? Rather than locking people into low growth opportunities and two, that, are, that they're well suited for rather than just throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks, right? <clears throat> so that's an example of a closed wall consumer ecosystem, right? Meaning it's to the consumer, but you, know, you can only participate if you're in Ohio <laughs> going through this program. But however, we hope and we would like to have far more of that um, baked into our system because it's such a powerful offering and it would just be amazing to be able to um, produce this at scale. So, and again, I mean, to your point, I mean, to the point we we're just talking about, like, you know, I always say we're all going to live to be 95, right? And you can't have one career for, 
you know, the seven, I mean, even if you retire at 85 or 80, whatever time, like you're going to have decades and decades of career. And I just think it's unrealistic, I think, to expect that everyone's going to stay in that same career the whole time, you know, or just retire and do nothing uh, for decades. I don't know. I just think we have to rethink this whole world of work. I completely agree. And you described this example in Ohio, which is a consumer example. I'm sure there's also enterprise stories of how you fit into how companies are thinking about this value proposition as they think about engaging more productive, more diverse, more successful workforce. Talk a little bit about that. Like if you have a story, you know, a story that you're able to share that isn't sort of a private story. Yeah, um, than an, an employer. I mean, yeah, you know, that's a great question. Employers are always much more loath to share these like heartwarming personal stories. I'm not exactly sure why. So I don't have like a great, you know, off the off the shelf story for you. But I will say that as part of this reskilling revolution initiative, as well as others, that is really the goal is to enable employers to start thinking about reskilling in in a scalable way in a way that's done both ethically um and uh, and scalably uh and and the, the whole idea is to really unlock people's potential i mean we do have one client you know that's using this for mobility um and i think two-thirds of the of the um, employees that have gone through it said that they had discovered a career that they would have never otherwise come across you know so it's just anecdotal things like that that make you understand how powerful um, this technology can really be, and again, goes beyond sort of the resume, like what does my resume say I can do and so on and so forth. I could see it being very powerful for, especially in COVID, entire industries becoming threatened or obsolete overnight. Like if you're in the health and wellness industry, let's say you were a gym operator and you know, you wake up and there's a world where for 18 months, you might not be able to send your clients back into that physical space. Yep. How do you reinvent yourself? Well, there's a whole set of people that get displaced, yep. have skills, Absolutely. which industry do they go to, right? So I could see outplacement having a really interesting application in terms of, uh, in terms of your offering, because we need to figure that out in really big groups rather than you know, a small number of people doing yeah. sort of traditional. Well, and, I mean, not a, not just an outplacement, but I think in public-private partnership ways, right? I mean, I think that's why this Ohio to work thing is so this so inspiring and and uh, compelling, is because it's a public-private partnership trying to offer a totally different type of career resource to people who are finding themselves unemployed, right? I mean, what's your typical process once you find yourself unemployed? You go to your unemployment office. And I mean, to be completely frank, I have not even been through that process, so I wouldn't know how, how to speak to that. But my my sense from having spoken to people that have been is that it's very poor. And, you know, like, unfortunately, many things in government, not very tech enabled. And again, again, we don't want to just be confronted with machine. That's why job coaches and other things are critical. But if we can humanize that process and at the same time, make it tech enabled and scalable, I think that's the best of both worlds, you know? How do you think, you know, you're a mom of, I think, three three yes. children, if I'm correct, I was looking at your, your bio and you've had a phase of being a single parent and now you're a blended household of all different ages and stages. And I'm a mother as well of two, two teenagers, one nearly a teen and one a teen. How do you think about the future as you speak to that child in your own home or somebody who's young, you know, somebody who's getting ready maybe to enter college or maybe they're graduating and they're entering a world of work in which technology is going to fundamentally change their opportunity. 
maybe they don't have access to what you offer because maybe that system is not set up at scale, mm-hmm. but maybe there's something that they could take away that would help them to be more successful. What coaching and advice could you give? That's a great question. I don't think this is limited to people that are entering the workforce. I think a couple of things. I think, first of all, be a lifelong learner. I think that's critical. Like always be looking for, you know, what else, what's around the corner? What should you, I don't know. To me, that comes naturally, but just really trying to sort of always understand that having a career means evolution. That's in my opinion, kind of, you know, what I would say. Um, and that there, I think that sometimes the barriers to lifelong learning are feeling bad, thinking I should already know this, you know, somehow not wanting to, to admit that you don't know something. I think just being honest about wanting to be a lifelong learner and needing to be a lifelong learner is critical. And then obviously, I mean, just as everyone says, like, you know, embrace digital tools. I think, you know, the young, quite frankly, are, are the most likely to do this to begin with. Right. So, um, you know, I, I don't think that that needs to be said. Obviously, we need to be mindful of digital divides. So I I don't know. I personally think there's less to be said to the career seeker and more to be said to policymakers and others that are really trying to fix this problem. I think the burden lies way more on, you know, both industry and policymakers to try to address the needs of young people and others that are going into these areas with solutions that that makes sense, you know. So that's who I would want to talk to and uh, explain, you know, my thinking. And I bet with the case study that you have that you mentioned in the state of Ohio, you have, you know, something really interesting to bring to the table. And, you know, similar to your perspective, one of the things that that MBO, I think, as a somebody that's, it's a corporation that is private, but very entrenched into the employment ecosystem, we serve Mm -hmm. many Fortune 500 clients as their vehicle for self-employed professionals. Mm -hmm. And so we're integrated into a lot of what's happening. And, And one of the ways that we've been successful is to tell the story of our constituent. And I think do a great job of that with the stories you've told. They're very aspirational. One piece that I would love to know more about, and I'm sure our listeners would, both on the corporate side, because we do have a healthy listening audience from enterprises that are thinking about talent and the future of work, Mm -hmm. but also from our individual independent professional side is, is the how. So you talk about a little bit when you go to the metrics website about the gamification aspect or the, the self-testing aspect of how you help somebody arrive at my career is X, now mm-hmm. my career should be Y, right? So and there's a there's sort of a secret sauce yep. that your system has that gets you from one point yep. to another. How can you share a little bit about how that works just step by step and maybe what what makes it unique in the in the world sure. of offerings? Yeah, sure. I mean, so again, I think it's back to there are soft skills. Soft skills basically means things that are not um, learned, you know, uh, sort of areas of expertise, right? It's, it's more what you, what you bring to the table inherently, right? So that could be things like, you know, your emotional aptitudes, um, how you interact with other people socially, um, your cognitive style and so on and so forth. Right. Um, and, and think of it a little bit like what the Myers-Briggs tries to capture in people. Um, so Pymetrics is a little like the Myers-Briggs for the 21st century. Similarly to the way Google is, you know, the yellow pages for the 21st century. So the concept is the same, you know, obviously the technology is quite different. And so what we do is we can evaluate you as a person much more holistically on a whole bunch of different levels. Um, and in a way that is unbiased, as I mentioned, so we're not showing disparate impact between genders and races. That's also really critical. Um, and, and by the way, that then means that women and people of color are being recommended for careers that they are not well represented in. So that's, that's critical, right? Um, And then we use that information often, or an employer will use that information 
combined with hard skills, right? So you do need to, for many, many jobs, but not all. I mean, especially if you're doing entry level, like the ability to train someone up is far more important than whether they have those skills right now. And I would argue that's true lifelong, but regardless, an employer may want to know, okay, well, what are your hard skills, right? And so, okay, you've got this great soft skill potential for this. Let's evaluate what your transferable skills are from your experience. And then if there's a gap, you know, provide some sort of a, of a, of a, you know, way to close that gap. So that's basically how the system works. And what's differentiated about it is that, you know, soft skill systems really have not evolved much since the Myers-Briggs and that was developed in the 1940s. Um, you know, in terms of just that most of them come from sort of, you know, traditional psychological thinking, which is great, which is fantastic. But neuroscience really is a new discipline that brings new tools, new thinking to how we think about people, how we evaluate people, right? And that's what's unique about Pymetrics and, and, and to completely differentiate it is that not only we're using behavior, so we have you put, we put you through a series of, we call them games, but they're scientific exercises designed to measure this behavior. But the things we measure are slightly different than what a traditional sort of paper and pencil self-report assessment would, would measure. So it really is quite differentiated. And, you know, for those that are less interested in the scientific differentiation, the main piece of differentiation that's critical is that the way we measure soft skills is really equitable, equitable and predictive, right? So predictive of success, but also very equitable. And I think that's the key to understanding why Pymetrics is as differentiated as it is. And I can see that that is why your conversation needs to happen at a social level. Like it, yep. it, it makes entirely makes sense that yep. this is something that um, strategically needs to be sponsored yep. by um, forward thinking organizations, uh, ecosystems, you know, states, Definitely. governments. Well, I know that we have to start to wrap up, but I wanted to, first of all, just thank you for such a wonderful conversation. It's been fascinating Absolutely. on all sorts of levels. I love seeing um, women innovating to make change. I know at here at MBO, we'll be following your journey and, and seeing you. You change systemically. I'll share with you that I'm an INTP and J, depending Hi. on the day. <laughs> I'm an ENFJ. So I think we're, <laughs> other than the end, completely opposite. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's what makes the world go right. When you have all these different personalities interacting and, and influencing workforce design. Yeah. So we should stay in touch. Absolutely. We should have you back. If there's something that I didn't ask you as we're wrapping up that you feel like it would be important to share. I mean, I'd love for you to, to share any closing thoughts with our audience. No, I mean, my main closing thought is, you know, embrace change so hard as humans, right? We like our routines, you know, like today I have a meal delivery service and it didn't show up because of the weather. And I'm like, wow, like, you know, we're such creatures of habit, right? And, <laughs> and it's like, but I think, you know, if there's been one silver lining to COVID, it's that, you know, it's taught us that we can, we can thrive even again, I don't mean to be insensitive to people that are not thriving, but all I'm trying to say is that I think as a society, I, I am hopeful that we can thrive even through some of our biggest challenges. And I think that that just speaks to our potential for, uh, for embracing change. And I think we just need to do it more often. We, we often get too comfortable in the ways of thinking about people and, you know, their potential. And I think we, we can't do that. We have to, we have to embrace change and different ways of thinking. So that's what I would leave your audience uh, with. I think that's a fantastic closing thought. And I'll leave you with mine that I've, it's just been playing in my mind as you've been mm -hmm. speaking, you know, if you measure somebody and they turn out to have that leadership potential, because I think yeah. in a way what this is code for leadership, right? Like somebody who has learning agility and who can survive in a threat and thrive mm -hmm. in a changing world, that should in and of itself give you credit to access 
hard skill opportunities. I mean, I think that's a really interesting thought. You know, how does your soft acumen actually earn you into maybe a more privileged ability to access the hard skills, which together will create success? So great, great thoughts. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. Thanks again, (laughs) Azia. That was Frida Poli, CEO and co-founder of Pymetrics. For more of MBO's insights on the future of work and how to make the most of the independent economy today, visit mbopartners.com or find another episode of State of Independence wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening.